Extraordinary Districts, Season 2, Episode 6, Systems to Build Knowledge. Extraordinary Districts, a podcast series from the Education Trust that investigates what ordinary school districts do to get extraordinary results. If you're a principal, a superintendent, a mayor, a member of a school board, or just someone who thinks that schools need to do better, this podcast is for you. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe that children can learn to high levels no matter what their background, and we're going to school districts that demonstrate how. I've said before that you won't hear a magic formula or an easy fix in this podcast. What you will hear are educators and others talking about what they do. Educators like Nicholas Sterling. Everybody can rise together if everyone is receiving what they need to make the next step and to have the opportunities that should be afforded to everybody. If you haven't listened before, I should tell you that we start with data. Many years ago, Harvard education researcher Ronald Edmonds said that we should identify schools that have the outcomes we want and then watch them to try to figure out what they do to be different from less effective schools. That's what we're trying to do in this podcast, but instead of effective schools, we're looking at effective school districts to see what they're doing. To find districts to study, we start with a data analysis by Sean Reardon at Stanford University. If you want to know more about Sean Reardon, go to www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts to find links to his work as well as our interview with Reardon in the very first episode of Season 1. But the big point is that by looking at all kinds of data, we're able to identify districts that are doing particularly well in helping students learn. We travel to some of those districts to see what they have to teach us. So far this season, we've gone to two rural districts where most of the children come from low-income homes. The first was Lane, Oklahoma, a one-school district that has improved enormously. The educators there said that part of the reason was that they deliberately set out to learn from the nearby Cottonwood district. Cottonwood has been a high-performing district for a long time. The educators there helped convince Lane's superintendent of the importance of early education and reading instruction rooted in research and evidence. He started sending teachers to learn from the teachers in Cottonwood. The two districts have been learning from each other ever since. Then we went to Seaford in rural Delaware, which was named one of the fastest improving districts in the state, three years running. Its leaders told us that they have been very deliberate about evaluating everything they do to ensure that they're serving all children. So, for example, they reset their neighborhood school boundaries so that the elementary schools would better represent the demographics of the district. And they completely reworked their reading instruction to better reflect the research. Today, we're going to a suburban district just outside of Queens, New York. We're going there because I asked Sean Reardon where African-American students are doing the best in the country. At the absolute top of Reardon's list is Wyoming, Ohio, a very wealthy, mostly white district that enrolls very few African-American students. 
Second on the list is Valley Stream 30, where African-American students make up almost 40% of the student body. African-American students there perform well above the national norm for all students. It's the friendly schools. That's the tagline for our district. That's Nicholas Sterling again. He's Valley Stream 30's superintendent. We headed there to find out how they achieve the results they do. And it turns out that the way they approach instruction, professional development, and even scheduling provides lessons that many other districts could learn from. We're going to learn about all those things, but let me orient you a little bit first. Picture New York with Long Island jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean. The western half of the island just east of Queens is Nassau County, and Valley Stream is one of the villages in Nassau County. Valley Stream is so close to Queens that you'll occasionally hear the noise of planes flying in and out of Kennedy Airport as we talk with people there. A little history. Nassau County was home to the first big boom of suburban housing after World War II. Thousands upon thousands of small, single-family houses were built in the post-war period, providing a release valve for crowded New York City. The homes were mostly bought by white families. Black families were excluded by racially restrictive housing covenants and discriminatory housing loans. Decades after federal law made such housing discrimination illegal, Nassau County remains one of the most segregated places in the country. One of the reasons is white flight. When black and Hispanic families move into the close-in suburbs, white families move further east on the island. As a result, school districts near Queens that a generation ago were home to Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, and Jewish-Americans are now home to African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and Asian-Americans. That's the story of Valley Stream 30, one of three elementary school districts which serve the village of Valley Stream. Sometimes folks there just call it 30. Just two decades ago, 40% of the roughly 1,500 students were white. Today, only about 5% of the students are white. When I first moved, we were the first African-American family on our block. And then now, that's definitely the majority. Everybody has moved. That's Natalie Kanj, the past president of Forest Road Elementary School, one of Valley Stream's three elementary schools. Today, roughly equal numbers of students are black, Hispanic, and Asian, mostly fairly recent immigrants from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Some families move there for the diversity. Here's Sharon Yap Van Dyke, the current PTA president of Forest Road, who moved from Canarsie, Brooklyn, a few years ago. I am Indian and Chinese from, South, from Guyana, from South America, from the Caribbean Islands. My husband is black, white, Spanish. He's Dutch, um, black Trinidadian, and Venezuelan Spanish. We knew that the community was multiracial, multicultural. I looked at the breakdown of the school, and I'm like, we could fit in here. <laughs> Another reason families moved to Valley Stream is for the lower housing prices. Valley Stream saw a lot of foreclosures in the Great Recession, which kept prices down for a while. And one of the reasons my husband and I came out here is because the homes were a lot more affordable. Our taxes are higher. That's Noemi Diaz, co-president of the PTA at Shaw Avenue Elementary. She grew up in Astoria, Queens, and her husband grew up in Flushing. But housing prices have risen dramatically in the last 10 years. An average house in Valley Stream that sold for around $300,000 in 2010 sells for $500,000 today. 
I said to him, thank God that we moved whenever we did because we wouldn't have been able to survive here. You know, there was this one mom who she's renting, she's renting the first floor of a house like three or four blocks away and she's paying about $2,400 a month for the first floor of the house. And these are not big houses. I mean, all capes. Yeah, they're all capes. They're all capes. They're... These capes were built between the 1920s and 1940s for all the veterans that were coming back. So you're talking about a one-income household with some sort of spousal support, not much because she has three kids, and um, and then on top of that, now she's only collecting disability which is about $160, $170 a week. How, how do you survive? That may be a particularly tough situation, but Diaz says many of the district's families are struggling financially. Not that that's what teachers and administrators talk about. There was such surprise from teachers that I was in their district to study their district because their kids, had, there was higher rates of poverty, higher concentrations of poverty in their school district. Like, they didn't really... It was almost like that wasn't their mindset. That's Josh Anasansel. He is a school administrator in another district on Long Island. He studied Valley Stream 30 as part of his doctoral work at Fordham University. In 2016, he set out to find a district where students from low-income families were doing well. He did an analysis of 42 of the 56 school districts in Nassau County that had complete elementary school data. In general, he found that academic achievement in Nassau County drops as the concentration of poverty increases. But Valley Stream is an outlier. With 45% of its students coming from low-income homes, Anna Sansel found that it was sixth in Nassau County in achievement for economically disadvantaged students. The five districts where economically disadvantaged students do better than Valley Stream have many fewer students from low-income homes. Those districts also tend to have a lot more money. Long Island could be considered the epicenter of unequal student funding. For example, in Great Neck, which does a bit better than Valley Stream 30 in Anna Sansel's analysis, about 15% of students qualify for free and reduced-priced meals. It has more than $25,000 per student to spend. Valley Stream, where about 45% of students qualify for free and reduced-priced meals, has just a hair over $17,000 per student. By national standards, $17,000 per pupil might sound like a lot, but on Long Island it means that administrators in Valley Stream 30 watch every penny and spend a fair amount of time applying for grants. In any case, Anna Sansel spent a lot of time in Valley Stream 30 trying to understand how the district is able to achieve its results. We're going to hear more from him later in the podcast, but for now I want to point out that two very different data analyses identified Valley Stream 30 as a district worth learning from. Sean Reardon at Stanford identified Valley Stream 30 by the test score performance of African American students in comparison to the rest of the country. And Josh Anasansel at Fordham University identified it by the test score performance of economically disadvantaged students in comparison to the rest of Nassau County. Either way, Valley Stream 30 seems to be worth learning from. There's one thing. Every district talks about it being best for kids. Every district will, 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 will say that and preach it until they're blue in the face. It's another thing to allocate the resources that show you're best for kids. That's Alejandro Rivera. He is talking about why he took the job as principal of Shaw Avenue Elementary School in Valley Stream 30 back in 2015. 
the access that they have to information, to resources, and to, quite frankly, a world-class teaching staff. These are teachers that, that, that are second to none. They're, they're well-trained, they're well-versed, their belief system, their belief set around children. Um, I've been in school districts where people take a, a, a can't-do approach. They take a can-do approach here. Um, and that's important. That was the quick appeal and for instantly and in saying, wow, they're, there's, they're not talking about it. They're doing it for kids. I can give you a, a quick example that encompasses everything in my mind. That's Christopher Colarossi. He's talking about why he took the job as assistant principal of Shaw in 2014. So before I was offered the position, I uh, drive around the building, just take a look. And, and at one point, I just happened to see uh, a recess. And I saw the whistles blow, the students line up, 25, 30 students run to the kickball field, divvy up teams. One team, 15 kids or so get into the field. The other team line up, not perfection, but line up. Of course, there was supervision, but with no adult help. Yeah. And that told me a lot. And what that told me, independence, problem solving, collaboration, flexibility. I didn't have to see the classrooms. That told me what kind of staff we had here. That told me what type of community we have. It's a, it's a community uh, uh, that cherishes and values education. Um, so that's just an, a little piece of you could tell this building and, and the district in itself just by that, that, that kickball game. What he saw that day was part of what Superintendent Nicholas Sterling says is core to the district. If you look deep um, into the history of this district and looking very closely at what we do, you will find a common thread throughout, which is um, relationships. These are the relationships that we establish um, between students and other students, students and teacher, teacher and administration, administration and teacher, and families, every, everything uh, is, is built on the relationships. But school is really about people. So I'm feeling good about the people that I'm with. That's the relationships. And that's what makes us the friendly schools. I heard something similar from many other people in the district. Here's John Singleton, principal of Clearstream Avenue Elementary School. We all grew up someplace else. We were somehow planted here. And we all get along. We have a high Muslim population. We have a high Spanish population, high African-American population. And everybody seems to get along because we celebrate everyone's differences. And that's what's key. Some educators would feel a little overwhelmed by the district's diversity and the fact that many students come from families who aren't in a position to help their children academically. But not Marissa Neary. I think I feel the opposite. Neary teaches first grade at Clearstream Elementary. I, I feel determined to say, like, I won't let that stop this child that has the same potential. And so my standards usually are very tough. And I think we all just, like, constantly on a daily basis, we're always talking amongst ourselves as colleagues. What can we do? What can we do? We know they're not maybe going to get the support with the homework. We know they're not going to come in with the same strategies as other kids or the language. That's a big factor here. But it's just like, okay, what are we going to do next? Susan Galgano, who teaches fifth grade, told me about one solution the two teachers have found, which is to bring her students to Ms. Neary's room to read books with her first graders and otherwise help with their reading. They, they might not be getting an adult at home to drill their sight words, but 
a fifth grader can feel really great about themselves and the first grader can draw their sight words. It's kind of like a, a win-win situation. You could probably figure this out on your own, but the educators at Valley Stream 30 take reading instruction really seriously. One mark of their seriousness is that the district's three elementary schools together have 11 reading teachers and a literacy coach who support classroom teachers. That doesn't even count the special educators and teachers of English as a new language, or ENL teachers, as they're called in New York. Those teachers also help with reading instruction. I met with a group of the reading and ENL teachers on one of my visits to the district. You're the backup team. Yeah, right. I mean, is that a fair? No, that's right. <laughs> What I meant by that question was that classroom teachers are in charge of making sure that their students learn the curriculum, but the reading, ENL, and special educators are there in case students struggle and need extra help. We're, we're very much focused just on explicit strategic instruction. Not everybody is at the same level. Not everybody has the same needs. So you have to meet them where they are and get them to succeed from that, from that point forward. Valley Stream 30 uses a system known as RTI, or Response to Intervention. In the beginning of the year, what we do is we look through at least three data sets. Teams of teachers and specialists look at students' report card grades and any assessment results they have. These include assessments from the Northwest Evaluation Association, NWEA, which are fairly quick assessments that many school districts use to measure progress from kindergarten on. They look at the New York State assessment results, and they look at students' reading level, as measured by a commercial reading program, Fontas and Pinnell. And from there, we kind of determine what students would benefit from Tier 1 services in the classroom. By Tier 1, she means classroom instruction. And then Tier 2 with usually pull out with a reading specialist or if they show a significant deficiency, Tier 3 services. And, you know, we progress monitor once a cycle to make sure that they're responding to the intervention. And based on that data, we either continue the intervention or we make changes to the reading program based on the students' needs. Here's Kathy Epri who is a reading interventionist at Forest Road Elementary. When children struggle in reading, they, as you said, they might struggle in a specific area of reading. And the most fundamental area of reading is being able to decode the words and spell the words. Remember, this is what we heard about in the district we visited in Oklahoma. Students who struggle with decoding are sometimes diagnosed as dyslexic, but often they simply need more explicit and intense instruction explicitly teach children who are struggling to learn how to decode and encode um, the rules of the English language. You know, I have a student who's at the Tier 3 level for reading, so I'm working with her on phonics. That's Joanna Mankowski, a reading teacher at Shaw Avenue Elementary. Her classroom teacher is now addressing comprehension at the Tier 1 level. Um, Debbie helps her with her vocabulary, so we all need to kind of work together to address different deficiencies. You know, we don't want her to move on from the school being three years behind. We're trying to close that gap. And um, I would say this year was, was a successful year. She's very close to grade level. 
Although some version of response to intervention or RTI is in place in a lot of districts, educators in Valley Stream 30 credit the success of their students to the intensity and consistency of the way they implement it. I'm Michael de Blasio. I'm the assistant principal at Forest Road, and I also am the coordinator of uh, response to intervention for the district. De Blasio came to Valley Stream after working in New York City schools for many years. We research and attach them to specific programs to support those needs. Uh, and then we have very rigorous monitoring of these students to make sure they are making growth. And if they're not making growth, what are we doing um, to support these students in terms of trying different programs, trying different methods, trying different strategies to move these students? That's something that was not happening in my other buildings that I've been employed at. For its core reading and English language arts curriculum, Valley Stream 30 uses a traditional textbook series in kindergarten, first, and second grades. In the upper grades, it was using the New York State curriculum, which consists of bundles of lessons and assessments known as modules. But last year, the district decided to go with the textbook series Journeys for all grades beginning in the fall of 2019. Here are teachers Neri and Galgano and Principal Singleton talking about the decision to switch from modules to journeys. It was too much missing that we had to right. supplement. So with journeys, it's now it has everything, and now it's what you can do with right. all the resources. Right. And let's not forget, time is essential. Right. So since journeys has it right there, you can literally plan it out perfectly and use your time wisely, whereas just like you said with the modules, you're spending a lot of time unpacking the modules and less time teaching the modules the way you want to teach them. It's a great resource, mm -hmm. and I think when you have good teachers teaching it, it's, yeah. you know, it's a good resource. Right. It's, a good place. it's a good place to start, and then it's what you make of it. There were a couple of things to notice in that interchange. One is the sense of urgency. Principal Singleton said that time is essential. He was echoing something Superintendent Sterling said to me. Time is not our friend, so we've got to figure out how to provide all this opportunity in such a very limited amount of time. We're going to talk about the district's use of time in a bit, but another thing to notice was that the teachers and principal were not talking about the new curriculum as something being imposed upon them by the central office. That's because teachers and administrators are all involved in the process of adopting new curricula. We're going to talk more about that too, but I want to stick with reading instruction for a little while longer. We've heard a lot about how Valley Stream 30 makes sure that students master early reading with its continual monitoring of early reading skills and intervening when necessary. But they also very deliberately address an issue that has long stumped many educators. It's called the fourth grade slump. That's a term coined in 1983 by reading researcher Jean Chaw. It refers to a phenomenon whereby even children who do well on reading assessments in third grade still fail on fourth grade assessments and never really regain momentum. For a long time, the prevailing explanation was that children mysteriously lost interest in learning when they hit fourth grade. But an experiment in 1988 began to open up a new line of thought. Seventh graders, some of whom were good readers and some not-so-good readers, were given a passage to read about a baseball game. They were asked to reenact what was happening with a game board and figurines. In other words, demonstrate whether they comprehended the written text. Half of each group knew a lot about baseball, and half knew very little. As anyone might expect, the good readers who knew a lot about baseball understood the passage and reenacted it accurately. 
the not-so-good readers who didn't know much about baseball did not. But the next results were what surprised a lot of educators. The not-so-good readers who knew a lot about baseball understood the passage much better than the good readers who didn't know much about baseball. In fact, their comprehension was almost as good as that of the good readers who knew a lot about baseball. This experiment has been replicated many times since, and it began a whole line of research which goes to demonstrate that reading comprehension has a lot to do with whether you have the background knowledge about what you're reading. For most people, this is kind of obvious. For example, I can be considered a good reader, for the most part, but give me a passage about thermonuclear dynamics and my comprehension will be pretty lousy. Third grade reading tests tend to be based on very simple stories with simple vocabulary. That means that if children know how to decode, they can usually do pretty well on those tests without knowing much about the world. But beginning in fourth grade, assessments start asking kids to read and answer questions about texts that are often about some aspect of science, history, or geography. If children don't have the requisite background knowledge, they are liable to struggle over unfamiliar vocabulary and concepts, even if they're proficient decoders. In other words, background knowledge is key to reading comprehension. That insight has led reading researchers and cognitive scientists to urge school districts to spend more time teaching history, science, and the arts so that children develop a wide knowledge of the world. But far too many educators do not understand this. Many have actually cut the time spent on social studies, science, and the arts in elementary school. They do this to spend extra time to work on what are known as reading comprehension strategies. Comprehension strategies include having students predict what will happen in a story, identify the main idea, and state the author's purpose. And comprehension strategies can be helpful. But when too much time is spent on them, it takes away time from learning the background knowledge that we know helps students comprehend what they are reading. I saw this play out in a school I visited more than a decade ago in Baltimore. All the students were African American and came from low-income families. The school outshone many other schools in the state in third grade reading, but not in fourth. At the time, this puzzled me, and I went to see if I could understand why. I found a school that taught reading for 120 minutes a day. In the younger grades, it was focused on phonemic awareness and phonics. In the upper grades, much of the time was spent on comprehension strategies. This meant that almost every other subject was crowded out, except for math. I randomly asked several students to read to me, and they read picture books fluently and well. One fourth-grade student read me a folk story from China that the class had read. Afterward, I asked the assistant principal what the school did to make sure that students had the background to understand the story, how Chinese names work, what the geography of China is like, and a little of the history that underlay the story. Her response was that the students didn't need it. You'd be surprised, she said, how much children learn from television. That's when I understood the fourth grade slump. Even kids who know how to get the words off the page, like the children I saw in Baltimore, still might not comprehend and be able to answer questions about the text if they don't have the background knowledge to understand the context and meaning of the text they read. And you can't expect your average American kid to come to school with an understanding of Chinese geography or even U.S. geography. That's why we have schools, to teach kids stuff. 
you certainly can't rely on random television watching habits to provide any kind of systematic or comprehensive background knowledge. And even the background knowledge that kids can gain from television isn't universal. Here's Superintendent Nicholas Sterling telling a story about a class he taught at Fordham University that illustrates that exact point. My final end-of-the-year assignment was for them to do a presentation on everything that we basically learned in terms of the concepts, in terms of leadership, within the theme of The Wizard of Oz. I'm a very theme-oriented person. And I was very surprised to find out that not every student in the class knew what The Wizard of Oz was. They hadn't, hadn't been exposed to that because, we, like I said, we had people, for, we had international students, so forth. So, I, so that kind of like, and that has always stayed with me. I'm like, wow, okay. So to talk about background knowledge and related also back to diversity and the wonderfulness of diversity not because everyone is di is diverse and have different experiences you can't make assumptions that everyone has had the same experience to make sure that their students have experiences that build background knowledge the district schools teach history science the arts and take students on a lot of field trips but that isn't all they do when i talked with the folks at clearstream elementary they gave me an example of what sterling was talking about Here's Principal John Singleton talking with Assistant Principal Yanni Chung. One of the module books was on Jackie Robinson and the teacher's teaching it and she's talking about Jackie Robinson, how important he was to not only baseball but to America, to breaking the color barrier, the, one of the first American heroes that was an African-American. But yet this, the students were like, but what is baseball? So mm -hmm. the whole story gets lost if the kids don't understand mm -hmm. what baseball is. Culturally, they had no idea, like, who is the pitcher? Who is the catcher? Who, what do you mean batters up? And that's something that we take for granted. Think about that. You know, we're, we're Americans. We grew up in America. We're watching baseball all the time. Or if we don't like baseball, we at least know about it. We contacted the New York Mets, and the Mets sent over a boatload of um, paraphernalia, hats, flags. It was like a, a live viewing of the Mets in our gym. We set up bleachers. We had a bandstand. We had hot dogs. Again, like I said, as far as being culturally responsive, we had um, halal. We had halal hot dogs yeah. because a lot of our students were Muslim and they couldn't have regular hot dogs. So we literally set up a baseball experience in the gym and we explained what baseball was, explained what the pitcher did and how they scored and r running the base and mm -hmm. catching so that they had that background knowledge and then we went back to teaching about Jackie Robinson. And it's, it's important. It's the same thing with any subject, mm -hmm. you know, with science. If you don't understand the three types of matter, there's no way you're going to understand science. So you've got to give the background knowledge and the vocabulary for what mm -hmm. matter is and why it's important, and then you can discuss how things are liquid, solids, or gases. Not every day can have a school-wide demonstration of a major cultural touchstone. But educators in Valley Stream 30 are acutely aware that if their students are learning about sea creatures, they may not have been to the beach. And a kid has never been to a beach. It's a very different type of lesson that you're going to have to really provide. Now, uh, you know, with technology, 
you know, we can put kids in the beach now, <laughs> literally through our virtual learning, so forth, et cetera. And that helps to build their background knowledge in terms of what we want them to learn in terms of the, the curriculum itself. I think we've heard a big reason why students in Valley Stream 30 are doing well academically. Teachers and administrators believe their students can learn, they take responsibility for ensuring they do, and they are knowledgeable about all the elements that go into reading instruction, and they pay attention to equipping their students with the background knowledge necessary to understand what they read. Here's Principal Rivera again. When you can get a staff that is excited to come to work, that's eager to come to work, and that understands that they're working towards something collectively that's bigger than themselves, that's where you see the difference in terms of success. And, and I feel like this is a place that, you know, since I've gotten to know it and be here, you have teachers that they just want to see kids excel and take pride in knowing that they were a part of that. Superintendent Sterling talks about this slightly differently. But well, we all know good work is not necessarily tied just to the people that are there because the people change. You have to have systems in place so that sustainability can continue. Systems is a word that sounds boring, and it isn't the first thing that trips off the tongue of people who want to improve schools. But every successful principal and superintendent I have ever talked with has told me the same thing. Student success begins with systems. It's all about systems. It's all about what your beliefs are. It's about building culture. It's about making a climate that's welcoming where kids can take risks and parents can ask questions. That's Erin Malone, principal of Forest Road Elementary. Of course, every district has systems, systems for scheduling, budgeting, and professional development. But what I saw in Valley Stream 30 and what I've seen in other successful schools and districts were systems that deliberately focus on helping teachers teach and students learn. So systems in place, meaning at, for, as simple as showing your face every single day outside at arrival and dismissal, knowing the children's names, having a master schedule that works for everybody, being able to step away and knowing that everybody knows what to do if you're not the person who's there. Malone says it's because of those systems that Valley Stream 30 is able to enrich its curriculum and offer opportunities to children. I think that that only happens when you're not stuck managing everything. For example, we've heard a lot about the district system of intervention, RTI. What I didn't mention is the system underneath RTI that permits intervention. And that's something that Malone just mentioned, the master schedule. Throughout the district, schools have eight periods a day, two of which are set aside for intervention and enrichment. Those are the periods by which we really focus our efforts to enrich and um, intervene where necessary with our kids. But at the same time, it's only during those two times that kids are either pulled out, so forth, and otherwise the teacher has their kids uh, most of the day. It may seem both commonsensical and obvious to consistently set aside time for students to get extra help, but it isn't. Remember Josh Anasansel, the school administrator who studied Valley Stream 30 for his dissertation? He's worked in several districts, and he explained to me why Valley Stream 30's intervention and enrichment periods, or IE, are so important for children who are identified as needing extra help. 
And very often the child's, the children who are identified are doubly or triply identified, right? You can be a language learner and be a student with disabilities, or you may need to go to, you know, you may need speech and remedial reading, or you may be in AIS math and you need remedial reading. And so the idea is that we need to put more services in place for children. Really smart idea. This kid needs more by whatever measure, and we need to help this child. So we're going to have some really smart people with great credentials and background knowledge and experience with these deficits, and we're going to have these people come in and work with these children. But what's so misguided about that practice is then the day becomes so fragmented. So the kids who lack continuity most with their learning are the kids for whom we provide the least, con- the least continuity. I sit in meetings and I talk to service providers and it's like we can't get out of our own way because we provide all these services and at the end of the day, the kid's day is fragmented and the classroom teacher doesn't have personal accountability for the success of that child. So I don't see Jimmy every day and that, that that, that lack of accountability is palpable because that teacher says, hey, my job is tough. Don't expect me to educate that kid when that kid's not in my room. And she's got a point. So this commitment to IE is powerful. Something as simple as setting aside two periods not only keeps the students' days more cohesive, but also helps teachers feel responsible for their students' success. But there's more to that IE period than just making sure the student who needs speech therapy doesn't miss reading instruction. So in our district, we have school-wide enrichment. Traditionally, it's usually a small cohort of students that get the enrichment because they're the top 5% um, academically within a, a school community. We have a mindset and a philosophy that enrichment is something that should be open to all children because all children, they all can be enriched on some level. Enrichment can mean working on projects that integrate what kids are learning in math and science and reading by building something, or it can mean putting on a play. Here's Principal Rivera. We use that time to provide remediation in areas of math and reading, but also the acceleration, the enrichment. We provide students with opportunities um, to develop new skills and new practices through our makerspace. Uh, We have a lot of hands-on activities, a lot of hands-on projects. We had students that have won writing contests across Nassau County. We had our core students perform the National Anthem at the Nassau Coliseum. We've had a student that made the finalist. He was a finalist in the the script Spelling Bee for for Long Island. I mean, our kids are competing, and and they're getting real-life experiences. So that was just part of what our teachers are doing now. They've started to see the curriculum beyond just the classroom now figuring out ways to bring it to life, and and lo and behold, you never know what you get by putting kids out there. Here's Superintendent Sterling again about the intervention and enrichment periods. That in itself is very different, I think, when you look at other districts in terms of how we structure time, because time for me is probably one of the most valuable resources that we have, and we have to learn how to utilize it, maximize the time, because time on task, I think, is what makes a difference for kids. And it's what we are constantly trying to deal with as educators. We have a 180-day school year, but we have a curriculum that goes beyond 180 days. So how we're utilizing our time to maximize um, overall achievement for everyone is, is an ongoing work, work in progress. So the master schedule is one system that undergirds Valley Stream 30, but there are plenty of others. We have a comprehensive 
um, type of a system that, it, that relates to professional development. Every Wednesday afternoon after school, all teachers participate in professional development that's tied to district goals. So, for example, three times a year they have a program on cultural responsiveness that helps the mostly white teaching force better understand their students' backgrounds. Other Wednesdays, teachers might learn about a new piece of technology or a new program. In the last year or so, they added Thursday as a day for more professional development for individual teachers or groups of teachers around specific issues in reading and math instruction. We do support teachers and the resources are there for them to go on conferences um, by choice and, and actually has to align to initiatives that are going on in the district. We also have online opportunities for people to actually learn at their own pace in, in wherever, whenever. In addition, Nassau County's regional office, known as BOCES, sends trainers into classrooms to model lessons and techniques. We're a district that is becoming more conscious of social media, Twitter. I mean, at first, I, I'm even learning in regards to Twitter, like, okay, it's communication, so, but there is a professional development piece to that because people share best practices in addition to great events that are happening, so forth, et cetera. So that, that, that's an offshoot of PD that was, I don't think was, in, was initially intended. It was a focus on communication, but we're finding that instructional practices also being shared in that regards. On its district-wide professional development days, it has what it calls EdCamp, where expert teachers and other staff members from the district offer mini-courses to their colleagues on subjects as varied as how to use a particular computer program to how to teach a math concept. By the way, this is very similar to what we heard in Season 1 from Lexington, Massachusetts, which leads the nation in academic achievement. You know, all districts do professional development. We have many, many layers of professional development here. But again, it goes back to, you know, we're constantly reflecting of how can we make it better for our teachers. Dr. Nicole Shem, Director of Special Services. And the teachers aren't the only ones participating in professional development. So are teacher aides and substitute teachers who have contracts to come in to provide coverage for teachers not only when they're sick, but also when they're at conferences or observing fellow teachers. Here's Principal Rivera again. So when you talk about, you know, who's put, who you're putting in front of children, you're putting in front of children people that are understanding of the culture, of the systems of your district, not people that just have a certification but don't necessarily understand the practices in place. Th those are really big reasons and elements of, of why we're continuously seeing student success. All that teacher expertise that has been developed is tapped when it comes to choosing curricula. I said earlier that we would talk about curricular decisions. Here are Assistant Principal Chris Colarasi and Principal Alejandro Rivera talking about this. We're currently changing our math uh, curriculum, and that is not done within an office where there are a few people making that decision. That is really coming from the teachers themselves. So we had a math committee put together from uh, teachers from all different grades. It didn't all just stop there where they researched a number of different uh, curriculums where our uh, assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction brought in representatives from a number of different companies and different teachers piloted different 
curriculums. So it wasn't just like we piloted one that we liked the best. They piloted different ones. And everyone came and observed and watched and they shared notes. And the committee as a whole came up with this one final company that that we're going to go ahead with. So it's just like that type of decision making where maybe something wasn't so beneficial for our kids. But again, it's not just done in a box. And that could take districts, to be honest with you, that could take districts a couple of years to, to go through a new curriculum, do a curriculum audit, and then really implement a new one. We're talking about being done in a matter of months. Valley Stream 30 has too many systems to go through with them all, but they all fall within the framework of a five-year plan that is agreed upon by the district as a whole. So the strategic plan is what outlines everything. But the strategic plan is a... I don't want to say it's a simple plan, it's a comprehensive plan that speaks very specifically to three areas that we are very much invested in. So it's the three C's, so we've got curriculum, um, capital, and communication. And all those, those are three focus areas, but those three focus areas are also under the umbrella of equity and excellence. But it has to be simple in the sense of understanding what the focus is. Too many districts, I believe, end up having mission statements, vision statements, plans that are there, but no one really understands it. Here's Aaron Malone again, principal of Forest Road Elementary. But the strategic plan of the district is really what guides us through, and it really is driven by this desire to make sure that there's enriching opportunities, that we're meeting the needs of kids who are at the lower end of a learning continuum, that we're meeting the needs of the kids who are at a higher end, that we're not satisfied with just teaching to the middle. It's broken down by curriculum area, certainly, but you can also see that there are other aspects. Like, we really try to look for and recruit a diversified staff because we want kids to see themselves and be, you know, have people who are mirroring what's familiar to them. We go out of our way to make sure that classroom libraries are eclectic and culturally diverse. Valley Stream 30 still has a ways to go in terms of recruiting a diverse teaching staff, but Superintendent Sterling is the first African-American superintendent in Valley Stream, and among other things, he is making sure that hiring committees are themselves diverse so that candidates can see that they will be joining a diverse community. So we've seen that Valley Stream has a lot of systems. I'll just talk about one more that builds coherence across the district. Every administrator in the district oversees some area of education district-wide. One of the reasons is that the district is too small to have a large central office. But they've taken what might have been a weakness and made it a strength. Here's Clearstream's principal, John Singleton. I'm the fifth grade advisor, and I'm also the social studies advisor. And I also work with the physical education department. And that changes every two years. So last year I was with, I believe, second grade, and then I was also the enrichment person. So that way everyone gets a different idea or a different taste of all the different services that's, that the district has. Here's Chris Colorossi at Shaw Elementary. So this year, for instance, I'm with first grade. Mm-hmm. Who are you with? Kindergarten. So kindergarten. Yeah. Um, and then we also have a department that we oversee. Uh, so again, when I was brought on, um, I was asked to oversee the science, which absolutely was not innate, was something that I had to work on and build, and, and, and especially with the science, with the next generation standards that came along the, the past few years. Uh, it's definitely been a learning curve myself as well. 
demonstrate to your colleagues, your staff, that you're going to take a risk and that you're going to learn alongside them. So that's leadership. So there was never a science expo before or for the third grade. Uh, Skype a scientist. You know, we we never Skyped real live scientists before. So anything we really, we we think of, I think of almost with baby steps, but then eventually you blossom and you evolve. So for instance, a Skype a scientist. We started here at Shaw with a few classes. He kind of worked out the kinks, like Dr. Sterling said. And then we blow it up to the entire district. So something like this expo, it was an idea. We were thinking about keeping it in-house. And then we're like, you know what? We could. This could be something that all third graders could figure out. That's when the innovation lab started. So now I have to tell you about the innovation lab. It grew out of a grant the district received to improve its science instruction. The money was used to furnish a large room in a closed building that in the past housed the district's kindergarten classes. I happened to visit the first day students used the Innovation Lab. Superintendent Sterling and I were shown around by Susan Rodriguez, the district's director for 21st century learning. The third grade is having a science expo, so each third grade class is here with their classroom teacher and the science teacher and a STEAM aide to help them out with the experiments. Each group is working on a different experiment which is uh, wonderful. There are five different projects written on the board. Uh, there were, some groups are working on tooth decay, layers of the earth, cohesion of water, lemon batteries, and rocks in a can. Those are the projects. So the children got to pick the activity that they wanted to work on. So, um, and you see he has a picture on the board of what, what the volcano with the baking soda and the vinegar, what, what that should look like. So lots of differentiation here. Students are working some independently and some with uh, with a teacher or or teammate or the science teacher. And here's the science teacher who was lured out of retirement to oversee the learning lab. The classroom teacher was well prepared, well prepared. The kids had chosen all of their topics. They did some research on the topics. They looked up definitions of the concepts, and now they're exploring a little bit more. Hey, you guys, can we stop this for a second? Just to, I want to brag about how well you guys are doing. And uh, what is your science demonstration about? Chemical reaction. We're okay. doing the exploding lunch bag. What is it? What are you going to call it? The exploding lunch bag. Okay, and can you explain what's going to happen? So what's going to happen inside the lunch bag, we're going to put vinegar and baking soda, and the thing that's going to make the bag explode is a gas. Okay, good. And why is it a chemical reaction? Superintendent Sterling told me he was almost bursting with pride. I'm just like, this is, this is, this it is, is it. wonderful. This, this is, this is the goal. Right here. Yes. This is uh, what you want. This is, this yes. is, look at them. Every group is working. No adults. You heard the level of language and their ability to talk with scientific terms today. We've that, been that's researching. Not that's not yes. staged. Yeah. No. And that doesn't just happen overnight. No. They make the. Yeah, it really hasn't because we, we <laughs> are taking it. one step at a time. <laughs> These in are this baby room. steps. <laughs> uh, Here's classroom teacher Valerie Taliercio. Um, they're walking out of here today totally mesmerized. This has been like shocking to them. I couldn't even explain what they, uh, how excited was I when I came yes. to that? <laughs> yes. I almost seem like ridiculous, but yes. this is what makes them interested in learning, you know? You've been a teacher in the district for, for a minute now. 25 years. Okay. So you have a perspective. <laughs> yes. So my question to you would be, 
Why do the kids do well here in Valley Street? I think that we raise the expectations. My whole, my whole preface of being a teacher and the, what I stand behind is I believe in my children. So I, my expectations are based on the fact that I know they could do whatever they put their mind to, and every year I prove myself right because there's no such thing as they can't. And I think the more positive you are and the more encouragement you give them, I think they believe in themselves and they do well. So key, high expectation. Yes. I don't think when you come into this, this is screaming high expectation. Yes. Yeah, we, we raise the bar. This is, you know, mm-hmm. we raise this the bar. is what we want you to, this is the environment that we want you to learn in. This is what you deserve. So, so everything is a message. Yes. You know, it may just seem like furniture and wonderful gadgets. If you have an iPad, if you have a 3D printer, if you have these wonderful, how is it impacting the learning that goes on with kids? That's what we're, we're interested in. <laughs> Not just having the gadgets. So what? And I'm always at, so what? What are they getting doing with it? With it? It's instructional technology mm-hmm. that we're interested in. Yeah. Not yeah. just the technology. So I've said that Valley Stream 30 is doing well in terms of test results. Here's an example. 60% of its students from low-income families met state standards in English language arts in 2018. That is basically the same percentage of students in New York who did not come from low-income families. A higher proportion of African-American and Hispanic students met state standards than white students in the rest of New York. Valley Stream 30 demonstrates what is possible when teachers have high expectations and districts have systems to support teachers and principals. Systems that build the knowledge and skill of teachers to teach reading and build children's background knowledge of the world. But we've also heard about systems like scheduling and distributing leadership, systems that all work together to provide lots of different kinds of opportunities to children to learn, including that brand new learning lab. One of the things that we heard Superintendent Sterling say was that these are the kinds of systems that are necessary to sustain the work when people leave or switch jobs. And shortly after my last visit, Principal Alejandro Rivera left Shaw Elementary to take a job at a school closer to his home. His assistant principal, Chris Colarasi, became principal, and the district appointed one of Shaw's teachers to become assistant principal, demonstrating the commitment of the district to building leadership from within. As much success as Valley Stream 30 has had, there's more work to do. Here's Superintendent Sterling again. Everyone knows it's easy to make improvements when you're, you know, necessarily at the bottom and you're trying to really grow and there's a large um, growth gap. But when you start to get to a certain level, making differences when you're like over 60, 70% of your students are, that's when serious work comes into play because you're now really focusing on moving probably that quarter of the student population that has the most need. So that's the work that we are kind of in. Which is another way of saying that he's pleased that Valley Stream 30 is outperforming New York State and in some ways the nation. But until all children are meeting standards, there's still a lot of work to be done. What do we do to make the next steps? So that's always been, has always been the work. And every year we build on where we have been. We're never satisfied with whatever accomplishments that we achieve. We are always looking to up the game, so to speak, so that kids really feel that they have opportunities. And the teachers also feel that 
um, they're supported and um, guided and given the working environment that supports their craft and um, makes them want to come to work on a day-to-day -day basis. That wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts. We're going to follow up with a panel of folks who will talk about what we heard and what lessons other educators can take from Valley Stream 30. Make sure you subscribe to Extraordinary Districts so that you are notified when it and other episodes are released. If you want more information about Valley Stream 30 or any of the districts we have profiled, we have plenty of data and links at our website, www.edtrust.org slash extraordinarydistricts. And let us know what you think. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet at edtrust or email us at extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Overdeck Family Foundation for supporting this season of Extraordinary Districts. Our music is by Mike Patillo, who also recorded and edited this podcast at Tonal Park. Wade Rush and Robin Harris served as script editors, and the podcast is supported by a team at EdTrust that includes Jack Fleming and Nicole Grayson. Thanks to everybody. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. <laughs>